At the beginning of uh, Mark's gospel, you guys probably remember the little story, the beautiful story that took place where Jesus walked on the shore of Galilee and saw Peter and Andrew and James and John, and they were doing fisherman stuff. And Jesus came to them and he said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I've always loved that statement from Jesus because it puts the onus on Christ. He would make them into something else, something that they weren't at that particular moment in time. He would turn them into disciples, followers of Christ, his true messengers. Now for this to happen, you have to think about what needed to occur in the disciples' hearts and minds at this time. They thought of scribes and Pharisees as the religious elite, so they probably thought that they were would be turned into something quite like those groups. So they needed to be reprogrammed. The scribes and the Pharisees were not, according to Jesus, the definition of spirituality and holiness and godliness. Jesus did not want to turn these men into Pharisees. He had other plans. Now by this point in the Gospel of Mark, here we are in chapter 12, Jesus is about to die on the cross, he's been publicly ministering for over three years, it's very clear that the Pharisees are not the goal, the scribes are not the goal of a follower of Christ. In fact, we've discovered that they're at odds with Jesus. And in our previous studies here in Mark chapter 12, we've seen Jesus dismantle all the arguments that these religious leaders brought against Jesus. Remember the Pharisees and the Herodians said, hey, what about the Romans taxing us? The Sadducees said, hey, what about the resurrection? And one scribe said, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered all of them perfectly to the point that no one dared ask him any more questions. But Jesus was not finished. They were finished, but Jesus was not finished. He had a question to ask and a critique to give concerning these religious leaders before he went into hiding until his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and ultimately going to the cross. And when Jesus confronted these scribes, when he confronted these men, uh, there are some lessons that we can glean concerning what a Christ follower isn't, or we can put it into the positive and learn what a Christ follower is. If the scribes are not Christ followers and believed and practice certain things, then we can discern that what it looks like to be a disciple from what they are not, we can be the opposite by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at two little episodes today, the question that Jesus asked them and then a critique that Jesus gave about them. So let's look at the the question that Jesus asked them in verse 35 to 37. It said, and as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself, Jesus said in verse 37, calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng, all the people that were there, heard him 
gladly. So like I said, the religious leaders, they'd ask their questions of Jesus, and now Jesus asks his question of the religious leaders, and his question was very simple. How can you say that the Christ is going to be the son of David? What did Jesus mean by this question? Well, first of all, we have to consider that the phrase, the Christ, or the title, the Christ, was not a proper name at that time. We think of Jesus, we we call him Jesus Christ. Christ is, uh, after all of these years, the name that we think of when we think of Jesus. He's the Christ. But when they said the Christ, they merely meant the Messiah, uh, the one who would deliver them from all the foreign powers that oppressed them and reestablish David's throne on earth. The idea of a Davidic Messiah at the time of Jesus was firmly entrenched in the Jewish, Jewish mind. By the first century, everybody was waiting for the Messiah, and they all assumed that he would be a son or a descendant of their ancient King David. So Jesus asked the scribes uh, how they could teach that the Messiah, the Christ, that figure, how did they think or why did they think that he would be the son of David? Right there in their temple, their area of authority, Jesus challenged their understanding about this very important coming figure that all of them were waiting for. Now I want to be clear here. Jesus was not debating with them that the Christ would be a descendant of David. Jesus knew, of course, that he was a descendant of David. The Old Testament prophecies had made it abundantly clear that when the Messiah came, he would be an offshoot of Jesse. He would be a son of David. And Jesus, in his humanity, was certainly a descendant of David through both Mary and Joseph. But what Jesus was challenging was the idea that Christ was only a descendant of David. He wanted them to see how the Messiah would be not only the son of David, but also the son of God. Now to make this point, Jesus does something fascinating. He quotes from David's own writing. Uh, He quotes from Psalm 110, which by the way is the most often quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament, Psalm 110. You might remember uh, when we were going through the book of Hebrews as a church, and you can just nod your head and say, oh yeah, I totally remember when we went through Hebrews 8. But when we went through Hebrews, there are vast portions that draw on the themes that are found in Psalm 110. Now the crux of the quotation that Jesus gives from Psalm 110 is found right there in the first line of verse 36. David wrote, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. And after saying that, David then goes on to describe the future messianic reign, God's deliverance of God's people through God's Messiah when he says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. But again, the crux of the whole quote is that first line, the Lord said to my Lord in verse 36. What Jesus does is he latches on to that little phrase and says in verse 37, hey, David himself calls the Messiah, the Christ, his Lord. So how is he also his son? In other words, David thought about the coming of the Christ, thought about the coming of the Messiah, through whom God would establish a forever kingdom. He thought of that Christ or that Messiah as his Lord. 
The Christ is David's Lord, in other words. That's what Jesus is drawing out of Psalm 110. But the Bible also said that Christ would be David's son. And a father, especially in that culture, would never call his son his Lord. So what gives? Well, in his humanity, Jesus is the son of David. In his humanity, David would say, you're my son. But in his divinity, Jesus is the son of God, making him the Lord of David himself. So this helps us see a hint at the hypostatic union that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The Messiah would be a man. The Messiah would also be God. And these two complete natures of Jesus Christ are highlighted in this passage. He is fully God and fully man. By the way, Scripture affirms the deity of Christ over and over again. Jesus is called the Son of God, a a title of great prominence 40 times in the New Testament, which, according to John 5, verse 18, made him equal with God. He's referred to as the only begotten Son of God, rather than one of many begotten sons of God. He's called the first and the last. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. That's their way of saying the A to the Z. Now, if you go around calling yourself the first and the last to the last, the A to the Z, these are titles that only God can bear. He's called the Holy One in the book of Acts. He's called the Lord of Glory in 1 Corinthians. He's called the Everlasting Father in Isaiah 9. And he's called God in Hebrews 1, John 20, Matthew 1, Titus 2, and Romans 9. So he has all the the requisite titles of God throughout Scripture. But Jesus also bears the attributes of God, meaning he does things only God can do, and he is things only God is. His omnipotence is revealed when he heals or calms storms or casts out demons or raises people back to life. His omniscience, that he knows everything, is revealed when he declared the Samaritan woman's sin, even though he'd never met her. When he declared what the scribes were thinking when he forgave the paralytic. And when he declared which one of his disciples would betray him. And when he told Nathaniel that before he came to visit him, Nathaniel had previously been seated under a fig tree. These are evidences of the omniscience of Jesus. And his omnipresence was revealed when he said he would leave and be with us always to the end of the age. When he said that when two or three gather in his name, there he would be in our midst. And when the Bible says in places like John 14, verse 20, that he will dwell in us. These are all things that can only be done if you are omnipresent. And Jesus' omnipresence is testified in Scripture. And as God, he is portrayed as eternal in Scripture. And that he came from everlasting, Micah 5, verse 2. Was present at the beginning of all things, John 1, verse 1. Is the everlasting Father, Isaiah 9, verse 6. And had glory before he came to earth, John 17, verse 5. To quote Jesus, before Abraham was, I am. There's never been a moment where the Son of God did not exist. And so he bears all of the attributes of deity. 
And Jesus' question of the scribes was designed to get them and us thinking about the Christ's true identity. They had a small view of the Christ. They had a small view of the Messiah. They only thought of him as the son of David, but Jesus wanted them to see he's also the son of God. He's God the son. And this was important for what Jesus would accomplish when he died on the cross for the sin of humanity. He didn't only die as the son of David, but he died as the son of God who was qualified to pay the penalty for our sin and satisfy the justice that was required in order to make us right with God. Now earlier I told you that today we were gonna learn some marks about the Christian life and I've got six of them for you today and three of them will come from the verses that we've already looked at together. Uh, Six marks of a Christ follower. And the first one is this from what I've just been sharing with you. A Christ follower, number one, calls Jesus Lord. A Christ follower calls Jesus Lord. You see, David knew that the coming king would be Lord of all. He knew that he was subject to the one who would come after him. Even though the Messiah would be his offspring, David would worship and serve and be in subject to this Lord. And we know that Jesus came to do these incredible things for us, to die on the cross in our place and rise from the grave so that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We know that he came to bring us home to God, and it happens through his feet upon the cross. So with David, we should see Jesus as Lord. He's earned this position because of who he is and also because of what he's done, who he is, God and what he's done, die on the cross for our sin. As our savior, Jesus has the rightful place as our Lord. It's really the only logical conclusion you can come to if you understand and believe in the gospel. He must be the Lord of our lives. David called him Lord, and so should we. But this leads me to another attribute of a Christ follower. And for for this next point, I want you to notice David's quotation with me again. Look at verse 36. David heard God tell the Christ. This is God speaking to his son. He said, son or Christ, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Sit at my right hand until until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, David saw a day that would come where the Messiah, the Christ, would sit at God the Father's right hand. I almost did this, but it's over here. He would sit at his right hand and wait for something special to happen. The subjection of all of his enemies under his feet. Now, Israelites in Jesus' day, they were waiting for a victory of sorts. They were waiting for the Messiah to come and drive out all foreign powers. And in their day, the Romans were the oppressors that they hoped the Messiah would come and deliver them from. And then they hoped that that Christ would then set up Israel as a new superpower here on earth. But David's psalm could have tipped them off to something beyond just simply an earthly kingdom. The son of David, David's Lord, the Christ, would one day sit at the Father's right hand waiting for complete and total victory over all his enemies. 
What this speaks of is the nature of Christ's first coming. He came, he suffered, he died, he rose from the grave, he ascended, and he did all of that, I don't know if you noticed, without establishing Israel as a new superpower here on earth. In fact, after Jesus ascended, Israel began to crumble from within, and ultimately, in 70 AD, their temple was destroyed, and they really lost themselves as a, as a nation, as a land, for many, many years. Instead, what Jesus did was ascend and sit down, just like David saw in the psalm, at the right hand of the Father, where he waits for the visible coming of his kingdom and the subjection of every enemy that is out of step with him to him. So this is my second point about what a Christ follower looks like. Number two, a Christ follower looks beyond earth's kingdoms. A Christ follower looks beyond earth's kingdoms. You see, since Jesus is God the Son, and since he departed earth and sat at the Father's right hand, his kingdom is not of this world. He did not come to establish a visible nation or kingdom in his first coming, but an invisible and spiritual one. And as Daniel said, one day Jesus will return and the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the former kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, this kingdom, will stand forever. And I think this is important because in our day, it's easy to get caught up in the turmoil of the nations, including, of course, our own nation, and to be grieved by the chaos and turmoil and sin within our own land. But all of this is to be expected. And though we are called to pray and work for the betterment of our nation, we also look beyond it to the kingdom that has no end. Like Paul said to the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There are so many problems in our world. There are so many problems in our lives. Every single one of you that are listening to or watching this today, you have situations and issues, people in your own life that you wish you could see resolve, health, victory. But a day is coming when Jesus will return and all who believe in him, we will experience that great victory. We will experience the vanquishing of all evil. Now before we move on to the, the next section, uh, I want to show you a third mark of a Christ follower, okay? And it comes from just a little comment that we might not have even spent much time thinking about in verse 36. When, when Jesus started quoting from Psalm 110, look at how he framed it. He said, David himself, verse 36, in the Holy Spirit declared, okay? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared everything in Psalm 110. So how did David write Psalm 110? Well, he wrote it through the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it in the Holy Spirit. I, I, I think we've got to hang on to that phrase for just a moment. Jesus thought, in other words, that Psalm 110 was written by David, but that it was also written by the Holy Spirit. The insinuation is that God moved David along to write Psalm 110 and that 
at the same time, God himself was writing Psalm 110, and that he inspired his authors to write scripture. Uh, Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Uh, Peter added his own sentiment on it by saying it like this, 2 Peter 1, 21. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God inspired the authors of scripture. That's what these verses are showing us. He carried them along by his spirit to pen the precise words that he wanted written. And it is the precise words that he wanted written, by the way. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, teaches us that the Holy Spirit teaches with the words of scripture. And I say that because some people think, oh, well, the Bible's inspired in its general thoughts and sentiments and doctrines and teachings. No, it's the actual words that are inspired that lead to the thoughts and teachings of Holy Scripture. So I just wanted to point out this. Number three, a Christ follower believes Scripture is inspired by God. A Christ follower believes Scripture is inspired by God. Now, obviously, someone can choose not to believe this about the Bible. But my point, the point I'm trying to make, is that Jesus thought this way about the Bible. And uh, he's the one who rose from the dead, so he gets my vote. I'm gonna roll with his opinion on the biblical text. All right, so a Christ follower believes Scripture is inspired by God. All right, let's move on to the second episode and i've got some shorter comments about this section but jesus is about to eviscerate the scribe so let's read it together it says in verse 38 and, and in his teaching he said beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation all right now this is actually just a summary that mark gives if you read the gospel of matthew matthew gives the full length explosion of jesus <laughs> onto the scribes and pharisees it's rather intense uh, his words are direct and sharp and some people might object even to that forcefulness you know oh, man i thought jesus was cool I thought Jesus was kind. I thought Jesus was gentle. I thought he just you know, walked around just listening to people and comforting them and just being a big love machine. But the reality is that Jesus saw the behavior of the scribes and Pharisees like a doctor or an oncologist sees cigarettes. They were dangerous for his people, so he called them out. The first thing he said was that the scribes liked to walk around in long robes in verse 38. Okay, what does this mean? Well, this is a reference to the long white linen garments that priests and scribes and Levites would wear in that era. And they did some things to really make these robes stand out. They would modify their garments. You see, in the Old Testament, God had told the people of Israel, when you have your everyday clothes, you should add at the corners of your garments a little blue tassel. A way for you, just another way for the people of Israel to be designated as God's people. 
But these guys figured out a way to make these tassels huge. It was just kind of a way for them to say, you might have a little tassel, you might be a little bit God's person, but I am very, 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 very special in the sight of God. Another thing that they did is that God had told them in the Old Testament to bind his word to their heads and to their wrists or to their arms. And so what they did is they made these things called phylacteries. They were these little leather boxes that they could put little snippets of scripture in. It would be kind of like you today, maybe on your home screen, having a little Bible verse that every time you unlock your phone, you can see that little scripture or something like that. But these scribes and Pharisees, by the time of Christ, they had also made their phylacteries huge. They'd have these huge leather boxes on their wrists and huge leather boxes on their heads. It was a way for them to say, oh, we love love God's word so much and it's so obvious because of these huge boxes filled with scripture that we have attached to our bodies. So you could picture these religious leaders going around with these huge robes, these huge tassels, and huge boxes on their heads. It was all meant to communicate how super duper godly they were in comparison to the general population. Now each year In America and in many other countries, we have a little tradition. October 31st, on Halloween, people dress up in all kinds of costumes. You know, this last year, I got to see either online or in person quite a few Mandalorians. I got a little Mandalorian mug here on the stage with me today or on my table today. All kinds of Mandalorians, you know, were all over the place. I saw little Mandalorians that were about three years old. I saw older Mandalorians that were 17 years old. My daughter was one of them. But that costume didn't make any of them a tough bounty hunter from another galaxy. No, it's just a costume. You see, anybody can put on a religious costume, but that doesn't make them spiritual. And these religious leaders had a godly look, but they weren't inwardly devoted to God. And that's the fourth thing I want you to see about a Christ follower today. A Christ follower practices inner devotion to God. If you really think about the other religions of the world, you'll discover that many of them, or most of them, have some form of attire that designates them as what they are during their various festivals or ceremonies. But true Christianity isn't concerned with any of that. It's not concerned with the externals. God is looking at the inner person, real inner devotion to him. As God said to Samuel when he chose David over his seven older brothers, he said, the Lord sees, not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what we should want. We should want inner devotion, something real, within it's all too easy to fake it fake it amongst our church family because by the way all these things the scribes were doing they really only work amongst religious people Uh, if you go to the club and pray a long prayer nobody's impressed it's only in the church that these kind of things gain traction but what we should want more than anything is an inner devotion to christ now jesus went on to say that not only did these guys wear long robes 
But in verse 38, they liked greetings in the marketplaces. Greetings in the marketplaces. Now, you might have read that and thought to yourself, well, hey, that doesn't sound so bad. Who doesn't like being greeted when they go to the grocery store? I mean, I love going to Costco. I know I'm gonna see like 10 people that I know at Costco, and you get to catch up, you know, what's going on and chat and all of that. But Jesus isn't alluding to just friendliness or simple hellos or greetings. Instead, what he's talking about is the special respect that the religious leaders wanted when they walked in public places. People got out of their way when these guys rolled down the street. People reverently called them rabbi and father and master. And sometimes these guys would even stop and blow trumpets, literal trumpets as a way to announce that they were about to drop a prayer in front of everybody for that region. It was just a total fiasco. Had nothing to do with God. But Christ followers aren't interested in nonsense like that. We're not trying to draw attention to ourselves, but to our rabbi, to our father, to our master. We want people to know Jesus. But Jesus also said that the scribes love to, look at verse 39, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. What does that mean? Well, synagogues were scattered all over you know, Israel and really anywhere even outside of Israel where there were enough Jews to build a synagogue for. They were kind of like church buildings. They weren't many temples. There were no sacrifices offered. They were kind of like church buildings in that they would gather on the Sabbath and they would pull out the scriptures, they would read them, they would worship God a little bit, and they'd fellowship together. And in the front of the synagogue, where the scriptures were held, there were these benches, and the benches faced the congregation. And they were reserved for the teachers, the teachers of the law, the people that were important in rank in that local synagogue. They had a responsibility, and really, they should have sat, at least the teachers should have, sat in those seats with fear and trembling, understanding the gravity of the position that God had given to them. But what happened was these religious leaders grew to love those seats. They didn't sit in them with fear and trembling, but they sat in them thinking that, that it said something about them, that they were awesome because they sat in those seats. And Jesus' statement about the places of honor at feasts had a similar meeting. In that culture, uh, when you had a banquet, you would organize all your guests by proximity to yourself. So you kind of would designate who's most important to you by who's closest to you. So family, closest friends, all of that. But these guys grew to love the closer seats of honor. They would jockey for position at these banquets and feasts. They loved those seats of honor. But this should not be the attitude of Jesus's people. We're not in it for self-honor and acclaim, but for the honor of Christ. And this leads me to my fifth point or mark of a Christ follower. A Christ follower draws attention to Christ. A Christ follower draws attention to Christ. William Barclay once said, whatever you think of him, he, had, he did say some good things. He said, the basic fact of Christianity is that it ought to make a man wish to obliterate self rather than to exalt self. 
You know, if you've got to pick between the two, I want self-obliteration rather than self-exaltation. You see, too much is done in the name of Christ in a clear attempt at personal honor and attention and ambition. I, I really believe personally that social media has only made this worse over the last couple of decades. As many pose as ministers of the gospel in an attempt at building their platform or building their brand. You know, God knows, and at the end of our lives, we will all give an account for the way that we served him. But a Christ follower draws attention to Jesus uh, and off of themselves and onto the Lord. A Christ follower aims to honor God. All right, let's look at one last thing uh, one last element of a Christ follower, and it's from Jesus' final phrase about these scribes in verse 40. He said that they devoured widows' houses and for a pretense made long prayers, and because of all of these things, they would receive the greater condemnation. In other words, these scribes looked spiritual, but behind the scenes, what Jesus said is they were actually ripping off wealthy widows, they were finding ways to increase their net worth behind the scenes. Now it's interesting, there's a, a historian named Josephus, I'm sure many of you have heard of him before, I've talked about him before, but he was contemporary to the time of Christ or wrote a little bit after Jesus' life. And he was not a believer, but he tells the story in some of his writings of a man who was a Jew who eventually was exiled to Rome because he pretended to be a scribe and he got a wealthy widow named Fulvia to make these massive donations to the temple. And then he embezzled all that money to himself. And he was caught, for, for, uh, caught doing this. And so for that, he was banished to prison uh, in Rome. And maybe that's the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. These scribes who some of them uh, were tempted by money and so they played on the fact that they were spiritual men, godly men, doing God's work, and uh, these widows would, with, with means, they would attach themselves to them, and eventually they would donate to the cause of these men, and some of them were destroying these homes in order to get their own gain. And it's clear they were using their position and the esteem that came with it to take advantage of the generosity of others. So what were they doing? They were supposed to be serving widows, but instead they were abusing widows. This is not, of course, the way of a Christ follower. We're called to give. We're called to serve. So here's the sixth thing I want you to see today. Number six, a Christ follower serves others. Remember, brothers and sisters, Christ came to serve us. So we, in turn, are meant to serve others. And when opportunities to serve arise, we should jump at the chance, Christ followers serve others. I believe that it's near impossible, if not impossible, for a person to be sanctified, to grow in Christ without serving other people. Now, I've known plenty of Christians who have masked their own spiritual unhealth through frenetic spiritual, frenetic church activity, signing up for serving everywhere and doing anything and they've left many major areas in their own hearts unaddressed by trying to be busy in the kingdom. I'm not talking about that. But for those who are growing in Christ, I think it's impossible to really be obedient to Jesus without serving 
other people. The path to Christ-likeness is one that is filled with service. Rather than take, we give. And rather than devour, we are called to feed. And thank God, the early church seems to have understood this message uh, from Jesus. They understood that the scribes and the way they were was not the path of the disciple. And unfortunately, there have been long stretches in church history where the error of the scribes has actually crept right back into the church and has even become the dominant way of doing things. And it's always a temptation, but by the grace of God, we must be a people who follow the way of Jesus and lay down our lives for others rather than building our own kingdoms. Let's serve him.